the New Testament in its world, with Mike Bird. We've got, got to get away from the view that Jesus kind of rocked around Galilee and Judea saying, Hi, I'm God. I'm going to die for your sins shortly. But before we do that, we need to fill in some time. So let me tell you some really good Sunday school stories. And eventually, we'll even make videos with acting vegetables. Welcome to the New Testament in its world, a super series based on the brilliant book by the same name. My name's Mark Hadley, and I'll be leading us through the brain of one of the authors, Dr. Michael Bird, lecturer in theology at Australia's Ridley College. Along with Tom Wright, Mike has written this book, and in fact has actually written 30 books on his own in the fields of Septuagint, Historical Jesus, the Gospels, St. Paul, Biblical Theology, and Systematic Theology, which means he's more than qualified to chat to us today. First, before we get going, we've had a little bit of a chat in the background. Mike, I understand that you are completely opposed to the concept of coffee. I am opposed to coffee. I believe it is creating mass addiction, a type of slavery. And I am the new Moses, the new Martin Luther King, the new Luke Skywalker, leading people to be free from the bean. In fact, you just want a different sort of slavery, though, don't you? I mean, you're a tea aficionado. I don't want slavery to tea. I want people to enjoy tea because it's there to be enjoyed. It makes life easier, makes life better, and it doesn't have all the negative consequences or that pungent, odious odor that coffee has. <laughs> okay. Well, look, my tea of choice this morning is Lapsang Souchong because I'm also a bit of a tea Nazi. I like any tea that tastes like a smoky bacon sandwich. What's your favorite for today? Mine, I'm having Melbourne breakfast tea, which is tea with a slight uh, suggestion of vanilla and a whole lot of snobbery. <laughs> okay, we should probably get to our topic at hand, which is who was Jesus? So let's begin, Michael. Before we talk about Jesus in particular, can you give us a bit of a sketch of the Jewish world of his time? Okay, so you've got to remember that uh, the, the Jewish world really is the intersection of three or, or like, dare I say, four or five different cultures. Uh, the Persians had dominated Judea or like you know, the greater Palestine area for a number of centuries. Then with Alexander the Great coming in and sweeping through with this Macedonian juggernaut and, and conquering all the various regions, that led to the, the acute Hellenization of this region where Greek language suddenly became far more uh, prevalent and even dominant through this region. Now, that didn't extinguish all the local indigenous cultures, but it kind of created this, this sort of massive overlay, particularly amongst the elite classes. So when it came to commerce or it came to um, the military or politics, there was this sort of, uh, you know, there's this Greek overlay put on everything. And then after the, uh, the Alexander the Great's empire uh, collapses or it kind of, you know, ends, it divides in four and different Greek kingdoms um, uh, bide for control of, of Palestine. But eventually the Romans come in and they take over as well. And, and that they allow the region to stay in its sort of Hellenistic um, element, its Greek element, uh, but they also want to, you know, put their own stamp on it. So, you know, that they're now appointing the, the the various local rulers, or in some cases in Judea, they uh, they appoint a, a a prefect or a local governor to run things. And the Romans are not there because this is a really valuable piece of of uh, real estate. It's not like they're there for the oil or anything. There, <laughs> they're there. They're there because it's a land bridge, largely between. Um, 
Asia Minor, which is kind of like, you know, the trading, the, the World Trade Center, and Egypt, which is the breadbasket, because that's where all the grain comes from. So it's so they're occupying it largely because of its strategic significance, and it's also kind of a buffer zone between what is further east with the Parthian Empire and that type of thing. And this is largely an agrarian society. Uh, you um, where you've got like all these farmlands, particularly up, up in Galilee. Uh, it's dominated by the Jewish religion. I mean, you've got some Gentile set settlements on the coast of Palestine and over near the Decapolis and up around Syria. And then you've got also Samaria, um, right bam smack in the middle. But, you know, it's dominated by the Jewish uh, religion. So you've got the temple, you know, things like observance of the Torah, a uh, very big focus on the land. And there's also this hope that, you know, after being dominated by one pagan kingdom after another, you know, the Persians, the the the, the Greeks, the, the Romans, that is God going to come and liberate this people? Because, you know, Isaiah and, and the prophets had made these, you know, big promises that, you know, that God is coming to 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 bring a new exodus, you know, to bring the people out of the exile, not just out of Babylon where they came, where the, the Persians allow the people to come back to, to Palestine, but, you know, is he going to bring a new Davidic king with a new temple, a new Torah, and, and, and a new age and all these blessings? Because as people looked around, they thought, well, you know, we're not exactly living that. And we've got this guy called Herod the Great, uh, who's a, a native Idumean, half Idumean, appointed by the Romans. He's not exactly David 2.0. So when are we going to get this, you know, this new promise. And different groups had different ideas of when that's going to come. You know, the Pharisees say, look, if we keep ourselves pure, get back to Torah observance, you know, make our, our country like a kingdom of priests or something like that, then we can bring in the kingdom. And then, then there are others who are a little bit more zealously minded. So it's like, okay, in one hand, Torah, and the other hand, your sword. So um, read your Torah and stabby, stab, stab. That's how you bring the <laughs> kingdom in. Uh, the Sadducees said, no, let's just collaborate with the Romans and make best that we can do, and hopefully God will back you in the end. Then you get other groups like it, like the Essenes who said that the world is so corrupt and evil and even all the, the Jews who are leading us are doing Judaism wrong, so let's just withdraw to the Dead Sea, write a commentary on the book of Habakkuk, baptize yourself three times a day to keep pure, and wait for God to send in the angels to wipe all of the lot of them out. Um so there are different views of you know of how of how these great prophetic promises are going to emerge, and it's in the midst of that scene that Jesus emerges. Who he's initially attached to John the Baptist, and he starts proclaiming the kingdom of God. It sounds very much like we're going to need a full palette of cultures in order to paint whatever background he's standing on. Look, can I ask a question about the historical Jesus? It's a term that I picked up reading your book. Is there any difference between studying the Jesus of the Bible and the historical Jesus? Are, are they two separate people? Are they one person, two sides? What am I talking about there? Yeah, the, the way I, I think about it is the historical Jesus is the Jesus that we reconstruct as historians. Okay, so you've got the Jesus of the Gospels and um you know, you've got what I call, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, you've got what I call the fiddler on the roof Jesus. Uh, he's very Jewish. Um, uh, he's 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 got these five major speeches and, and that type of thing. And Mark is what I call the born identity Jesus. This sort of dramatic, uh, amazing. It's like wow, this guy is cool. Who is he? It's like a mystery you're trying to solve. Luke's what I what I call the um 
the Tolstoy War and Peace. It's this epic narrative about about the prophet Jesus and, and who's also the Lord and the beginning of the early church. And the Gospel of John has got his own, you know, ex- perspective of the more spiritual, almost mystical Jesus uh, who's been sent from heaven. So all of the evangelists have their own unique thing. But as historians were saying, okay, um, that's all well and good, and we can we can allow them to stay in their place. But if we try just for a moment, maybe just to go behind what they're doing. And if we had to create one kind of narrative, uh, which is which is not a kind of um, um, how can I put it, not not kind of like putting all the four gospels in a a, a blender, uh, but if we had to tell one historical story about Jesus in the context of Roman Judea, okay, in light of all the sources available, both the gospels and and Roman sources and Jewish sources, how would we tell that story? Uh, that's largely what a, the study of the historical Jesus is. It doesn't have to be kind of like the anti the anti gospel Jesus, or well, let's get behind the the Jesus of the church's faith and and go back to a more secular. It's basically what what is the what what is the person that caused people to write the type of books about Jesus that we do find. You've raised a really interesting question by sort of characterizing the various gospels. Uh, is there a core Jesus that sits behind? All of the Gospels, do you feel like there's a united Jesus there somewhere or are there only just four different views of Jesus? Oh, no, look, I'd say that there is a lot of similarities between the four Gospels. I mean, they, they all do have their specific things. Like I said, you know, you know, Matthew's got his specific thing and Mark, Luke and John, uh, but, the, but they're not four different Jesuses. It's more like four different stained glass windows where they're all portraying the same person, but they're making different emphasis, adding different textures, different colorings in the way that they do it. Uh, but behind behind all of them, there is all the same person. And one thing we have, we, I mean, what the historians have to ask is why did people write these four types of books about Jesus? Uh, and we know in the second century that people then wrote other gospels. You get things like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Peter. So people uh, kept writing Jesus books, but the the four earliest ones, as as far as we know, are these four canonical gospels. And and what type of a person had such an effect on the early church that these types of books would then be written? And I think there there is, although there, there is a diversity, but also a type of unity across the four Gospels. They all tell the same basic story of Jesus coming into Judea, um, his conflict with the Judean leaders, especially the Pharisees, uh, sort of a type of a pattern of teaching you know, about the kingdom of God, you know, love for neighbor, that type of thing, and, and how Israel's restoration is going to happen. And he's crucified, he's buried, and they all report his resurrection. So... Going into those Gospels itself, when Jesus is asked, you know, asks the question himself, uh, who do people say that I am? One of the answers that comes back is that he is a prophet. So a lot of people seem to think he's a prophet. Was Jesus a prophet? Oh, undoubtedly. And he, he certainly owns the title and uses it frequently to describe himself. And he, in, in some ways, sees himself continuing the work of John the Baptist. Uh, he also compels him, uh, compares himself to figures like Elijah. Uh, in the Old Testament, um, uh, and so he he completely does identify with the prophetic role. But uh, he is also more than a prophet. Uh, he also identifies as, as a rabbi. He's also a, 
a teacher of wisdom, a type of sage. Uh, what is more, he, he begins to give some sort of, shall we say, um, cryptic or veiled intimations that he is also Israel's Messiah. Now, that, that was a little bit controversial because, you know, if you walked around with a big neon line saying, get your Messiah here, and if there's a big <laughs> crowd of people following you, then the um, the local leaders are going to get very, very nervous and they're going to send in the security forces to kind of put you down because it looks like you're staging a coup. So he, he does it in, in a very kind of cryptic form. And he asks like questions like, well, you know, in Psalm 110, you know, that said, the Lord said to my Lord, and if this is said by David and David calls um, the Messiah Lord, then who, you know, who's, who's David then? I mean, is, is the Messiah son of David or not? So he, he does it in these kind of cryptic questions trying to, uh, trying to kind of like affirm things uh, that, that is suggestive but are not quite clear because he doesn't want to give the game away just yet. And it's not till his trial before Caiaphas that he actually comes out and really does say, well, yeah, I am, uh, you know, the son of the blessed one, you know, the Messiah. So in one sense, uh, prophet was the easy title to own. It was what came after that that was the harder one. Oh, yeah. I mean, and the big question is it's kind of like an is he or isn't he? Is, is he claiming to be the Messiah or not? Uh, because there's some things that he's doing um, that do have a kind of, you know, messianic thread. Um, you know, I mean, he talks about a kingdom of God. Um, he gets called a son of David by supplicants of healing. And so they're trying to whip up a bit of enthusiasm for him, um, that type of a thing. Um, you know, he compares himself to David and Solomon, okay? Um, so there are a number of things that certainly do um, intimate it, but he's also, he's not carrying out a military campaign. Uh, he's not raiding the countryside with a small army. Um, he's not, you know, you know, walking around with a banner saying, you know, hashtag overthrow Rome now or anything like that. Okay, so he he's kind he 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 does accept, I think, a messianic title or role, but he wants to redefine it uh, in light of a different suite of values according to a different uh, a, a different a different way of reading scripture, so that Israel's Messiah is not this uh, triumphant warrior. Uh, it's more like a like a she more like a shepherd, more like the the the, the, the um the smitten shepherd of Zechariah, the suffering servant of Isaiah, um, the suffering righteous one of the Psalms. He wants to redefine the messianic role according to a different suite of scriptural stories. Through his actions, Jesus gained the reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. How could this Jesus fellow, a clever rabbi, a mighty healer, and even a prophet by all accounts, stoop to the level of keeping company with folk who are morally wretched and ceremonially impure? Wasn't Jesus concerned about his reputation or with his own personal purity, which Israel's worship demanded? Ought not a prophet to be rebuking and admonishing people like these? Jesus' answer was that it wasn't the healthy who needed a physician, but the sick. God had always been in the business of welcoming prodigal children home. Jesus' table fellowship with outsiders was meant to be a living parable of the open invitation to enter the kingdom of God. It was as if Jesus was handing out the hors d'oeuvres of the future messianic banquet, showing in advance who would dine in God's company in the new creation. 
Okay, so let's dig a little further into this. Uh, we know he's happy to own the title of prophet. Uh, we know that he doesn't want to be seen as a general, uh, but he is going to be the Messiah, but not the sort of Messiah that you think. Who else did Jesus think he was? Are there any other key aspects of his identity that we need to address? Well, the big question that we have to ask is, did Jesus think he was God? That's that's probably the, the number one question, and that's one some... Some historians know Jesus saw himself as a prophet, maybe a messiah, but many people have struggled with the idea that Jesus thought he was God. Uh, now, on, on the one hand, we, we've we've got got to get away from the view that Jesus kind of rocked around Galilee and Judea, saying, "Hi, I'm God. I'm going to die for your sins shortly." But before we do that, we need to fill in some time. So let me tell you some really good Sunday school stories that you'll be able to pass on for generations. And eventually, we'll even make videos with acting vegetables. Um, you know, <laughs> he, he didn't go around saying, hi, I'm God. I mean, he was there to say that that big promise of, you know, of the coming of God as king is happening and it's happening in and through me. That's what the kingdom of God means. It means the coming of God as king. And if you want to understand that, read passages like Isaiah 52, you know, you know, behold, Zion, you know, your Lord comes to you, you know, your God reigns or passages like Zechariah 8 or, or parts of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He's saying the shot clock had wound down to zero. The day of the new exodus is happening. God is at last coming as king. And the proof of that is the various things that Jesus is doing. He's enacting those promises of Isaiah 61. He's setting the captives free, uh, the lame walk, the blind see, the poor have the good news. God is coming king in and through him, which is why he speaks with a sense of unmediated divine authority. He doesn't say the word of the Lord came to me and I say unto you. Uh, no, he, he simply speaks with his own divine authority. And there's a number of places where I think we see that. Uh, number one, you see that is when Jesus offers to forgive people's sins. And people say, and, and the scribes say, whoa, 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 you're forgiving people's sins. And, but but God alone can do that. And Jesus says, well, um, well, I've, I've healed the guy. So what's what's easier, to heal the guy or to say your sins are forgiven? Now, the idea there is that, that say, saying the word is easy, but doing the action is hard. But if he can do the action, if he can heal uh, you know, a, a lame person, then obviously um, the, 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 the utterance, or the, the statement that go with it are, are, are then attested. Now, a lot of people used to say, well, actually what Jesus is doing there, he's just acting like a rogue priest. Okay, he's he's declaring the forgiveness of sins, which you know, the priest would do in the temple. Now, I, I used to think the same thing, except I, I discovered that the Jerusalem cultists, you know, where they used to do sacrifice, um, it's not like your um, your Christian service where you have a confession of sin and then the, the minister or the pastor or the priest then declares the forgiveness of sins. Uh, there was none of that. It, it, it was just assumed that the, the ritual kind of worked in itself. So you didn't need a priest pronouncing the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is not acting just like a rogue priest. He is, in a sense, usurping divine prerogatives. And, and he's got this strong sense of, of of unmediated divine authority. And that is why they say, but who can do this like but you know God alone or the one God? Uh, the other thing that I think is 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 very interesting is in Luke uh, Luke nineteen where where Jesus seems to be um, he's coming into Jerusalem 
and he's saying he's weeping over Jerusalem because he knows what's going to happen. This city is putting itself um, on a path for conflict with Rome rather than embrace his way of being Israel, his view of the kingdom. Eventually, they're going to choose the path of revolution and violence, and it's all going to go horribly wrong. And he, he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, you know, if you did not know the day of your visitation, and this language of visitation, the way it's used um, elsewhere, is about the coming of God. So Jesus sees him his own coming to Jerusalem as this fulfillment of prophetic promises of God coming as king. And finally, the scene that seals it for me is when Jesus is before um, Caiaphas. And Caiaphas asks him, you know, are you the son of the blessed one? And um, the, the Messiah, and Jesus says, yes, and you will see the son of man sit the right hand. Um, of the Most High and coming with clouds and, and, and power and glory. Now, what's interesting about Jesus' response to Caiaphas is that his, his words blend two scriptural texts, which is Psalm 110, verse 1, and also um, Daniel 7, 13 to 14. What those two texts have in common is the idea of a, of a figure seated and sharing God's own throne. So Jesus is saying to Caiaphas that he shares in vice regency with the God of Israel. Okay, now this is an amazing claim to make to say that you share in the orbit of divine sovereignty. And I think the reason why Caiaphas tears his cloak uh, is not because Jesus has uttered the divine name, I am, but rather Jesus is putting him in a self in a place or a state of authority and sovereignty that was reserved for the one God of Israel. So I think uh, in, uh, both implicit in the Gospels, a little bit more explicit in John, Jesus is certainly claiming uh, that he is a, a divine person. Although, like I said, he doesn't go around in a kind of snazzy showing away saying, you know, God, man, here, come get your autograph. Right. Uh, look, I'm a simple man, Mike, so I'm actually going to ask, I can see from what you're saying that Jesus behaves like God, that he does those things that only God might do, that he in fact actually makes the sorts of claims about himself that, that would point at his divinity. But is there any point where he actually uses, I mean, you say he doesn't necessarily do it, but does are there any points like, say, John 8, when he says, before Abraham was, I am, is that actually a claim to divinity or am I misunderstanding that? Well, in in the case of uh, John's gospel, yeah, I think I think that is you know one of the more explicit statements you can find. Um, other people will want to maybe you know treat it differently. Uh, people raise questions about the the, the historical uh, texture of John's gospel. I mean, you have to remember John's gospel um, is a little bit different to the Synoptics, and, and he's operating um, uh, with a little bit more. Um, uh, I don't want to say artistic license, but he's offering a far more dramatic interpretation of who Jesus is. And he certainly accents um, um, who Jesus is and his own way. And, and sometimes I think Jesus, he, what John gives us is not just the words of Jesus, but also the impression that Jesus created amongst his earliest followers. So uh, historians often talk about the difference between the verba of Jesus and the voice of Jesus, okay? So you could say the synoptic gospels give us a, a lot of, of the verba, the words of Jesus, but sometimes the more general voice, whereas in John's case, I think he does give us more of the, the general vibe of Jesus rather than maybe the actual words.
Okay. Uh, well, look, if there was one thing you wanted people to take away from your book or yours and, and Tom Wright's book about Jesus, the historical Jesus, what would it be? Uh, I would say, number one, Jesus is not just the warm-up act to Paul, okay? As if, as if Jesus is Paul's own personal John the Baptist. Uh, because some of the, the evangelical circles I travel in, they tend to be very, very Paul-focused. So it's all about, you know, half of Romans and, and Galatians. That's kind of their canon within the canon. And we like Jesus because he led us to Paul. Now, that, that's a little bit of an overstatement, a bit of a hyperbole, I know. But I think you really have to appreciate um, that, you know, that the Jesus, the Gospels uh, really do 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 pref uh, preface, but kind of occupy the front end of our canon because God really wants to stress to us that, you know, knowing the story of Jesus um, should be a, a big part, the main part of the New Testament. So the story of Jesus is not just, okay, look, as long as he was born of a sinless birth, as long as he died a sin-bearing death, the rest is filler. Uh, no, this is the crucial link between the story of Israel and the story of the church, okay? You can't jump from Genesis 3 to Romans 3. You've got to have the story of Israel, which is then completed, fulfilled, comes to its climax uh, in the story of Jesus himself. Mike, thanks very much for taking us through who was Jesus. And that's just been part of the insight that we're having into the New Testament in its world. Now, next episode, we'll be dealing with that controversial figure, Paul. Why was Paul so controversial? And we'll dig a little further into that. But until then, we'd encourage you to have a look at the New Testament in its world. And we'll provide in the show notes lots of links associated with this week's episode about who was Jesus. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Eternity Podcast Network, eternitypodcasts.com.au.